So I debated about the ti- a title for this talk. And for right now, I don't know what it's going to be called on Dharma Seed, but um, for right now it's called Damn, Now What? <laughs> and I'm of the generation that damn was a cuss word. I don't think that we have cuss words now. It's just a word. <laughs> but it still has that valence to me. Oh, you shouldn't say that, especially in an arm hall with a... So I'm, I'm aware that I'm juxtaposing the profane and the profound. And it feels like that's what I'm living these days. There are these really both deep and high aspirations that I have and life is extremely hard these days on so many levels. And, you know, we were talking about the unknown in some of our groups and I don't know what's happening in my own life and also in our larger collective. You know, the culture and the, the, so, the so-called body politic seems dismembered and fragmented and at incredible odds with itself. Any stability seems uh, impossible in terms of holding the challenges that we face of even our, in our personal lives, of our aging, our illnesses, um, the experience of our loved ones, um, the stressors of raising children in uh, a hostile world, the multiple and acute disparities that affect all of us that seem to be great, becoming greater rather than, than smaller. And even if things are going well in our personal lives, in the background, there's still this feeling that things are really hard and difficult. So maybe this is the first noble truth, that there is suffering in our personal lives. But have you noticed we haven't, have you noticed that we don't live in an enlightened world? You know, all the conditions, all the external conditions that are actually dismantling the social programs of equity, even the arts, for the accumulation, the greed of a few, with whole communities, including ours, being demonized and physically assaulted due to all sorts of characteristics, race, ethnicity, gender identity, orientation, ability, with walls being built between nations in the illusion of creating peacefulness for a select few.
the, uh, the fetters of greed, hatred, and delusion seem to be epidemic. As many of you know, I do a lot of diversity and anti-racism work, both within and outside of Dharma communities. And um, in recent times, I have never, I have, I can't remember when I have been so disappointed and disillusioned at the limitations of my own capacity and practice and the shortcomings of spiritual and organizational leadership as well as what's happening in our larger culture. How much further we have yet to go to create an anti-racist society while we are continually immersed in a racist one. I mean, that's the dilemma. Creating anti-racist field within a larger field that is still racist. It is how do we practice consciousness in an unconscious world? And yet we talk about freedom and liberation. So, And yet all those factors that I just listed, all those experiences I just listed, seem to be the exact opposite of that. You know, and we can talk about the, what I would call hmm, more individual experiences of the hindrances that obscure freedom and insight, greed, aversion, restlessness, sleepiness, doubt. You know, they're numerically portrayed in the scriptures. So there's a containment. There are five of them. (laughs) Therefore, maybe even as difficult as they are, they're manageable. But what happens when you come into the the diametric opposite of freedom? Do we really talk about that? Do we talk about what is the opposite of enlightenment? There are times that I don't care why enlightenment doesn't happen. I just care that it doesn't happen and it's not happening. And that's the edge of my practice. We are not that evolved as a human condition, it seems. And yet we always talk about freedom and liberation. So if we assume that Nibbana exists, you know, that place of awakening, what happens when it doesn't happen? What happens when we have to let that goal of practice go? What happens when awakening is no longer a sufficient motivation for practice? It speaks to a larger issue because when we have this experience of disillusionment or disappointment, we often go to idealized hope or, or even idealized teachings in order not to deal with a disappointment 
And John Wellwood, who was a Buddhist psychologist, wrote about this really early in, not really early, but I mean in, in the early 80s when, when um, our insight tradition was, was coming into uh, cultures in the West. And he said, and he coined the term spiritual bypassing. I coined the term to describe a process I saw happening in the Buddhist community that I was in and also in myself. Although most of us were sincerely trying to work on ourselves, I noticed a widespread tendency to use spiritual ideas and practices to sidestep or avoid facing unresolved emotional issues, psychological wounds, and unfinished developmental tasks. We often use the goal of awakening or liberation to rationalize what I call premature transcendence, trying to rise above the raw and messy side of our humanness before we have fully faced it and made peace with it. And then we tend to use the absolute truth to disparage or dismiss relative human needs, feelings, psychological problems, relational difficulties, developmental deficits. I see this as a occupational hazard of the spiritual path in that spirituality does involve a vision of going beyond our current situation, yet trying to move beyond our psychological and emotional issues by sidestepping them is dangerous. It leads to a conceptual one-sided spirituality in which one pole is elevated at the expense of its opposite. Absolute truth is favored over relative truth. Emptiness over form. Transcendence over embodiment. Detachment over feeling. So the word bypass indicates a little bit of a shortcut. I don't like this disillusionment, despair. So I'm going to try to avoid it. That is the teaching of the second foundation of mindfulness, Vedana. We avoid unpleasant sensations by going around them. And we do this with our spiritual practice as well. How can we turn towards the despair and even immerse ourselves in it as part of our spiritual practice. After a long struggle with um, a debilitating illness, one of my closest friends lost her soul partner. And uh, they were the primary caregiver And they were as close as two people could be. And their grief was, at the time, inconsolable. Maybe seemingly interminable. This This is the illness, aging and dying that all of us face. And yet when it comes into our own lived experience, it can be consuming. And one very experienced Dharma teacher, 
probably not intentionally meaning harm, said to them, Arhants don't need to grieve. So Arhants is, is the Pali word for enlightened being. Is the point of practice really to negate and deny these essential human experiences? Even if we're encouraged to go through them as opposed to around them, there is a value placed on going through, getting through the difficulty. What happens when we're stuck in the quicksand? When, the life, when life's circumstances has no foreseeable resolution. When there, the limitations of our lives prevent us from seeing a path. This could be existential as in the disillusionment, or psychological as in the loss, or the grief, or the depression. Or it could be sociocultural, as in the continuing racism or misogyny or heterosexism or transphobia or the constant cycle of oppression and how we harm each other. For myself, when this came into my life, I had to dig into my practice and my sense of what this life is possible, what potential does this life have in order to navigate these extremes of disillusionment and despair. And beyond the content of the teachings, beyond the specifics of my particular story or, or my attraction to certain teachers pointing, you know, the 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 uh, image of uh, of the Buddha that the Buddha gave of these teachings being pointing to the moon. When I could see the moon and not know how to get there, I had to really explore what's underneath all of that for me. What's underneath every teaching, every difficulty, every joy, every experience. And I found a yearning, a yearning asking, can I open to this too? Can I open and turn towards, and it's probably not the exact right match of vocabulary, but can I love this too? as part of my life? Can I turn towards the despair and the imperfections as an object of awareness? I have a friend um, who was a Roman Catholic priest for several decades and he came into um, the Catholic priesthood 
uh, in the brilliance of Vatican II when there was this joy and openness and, you know, this um, uh, collective energy that um, Pope John XXIII instituted. And after he came into the priesthood, um, after Pope John died, um, over, I think, what he described, eight to 12 years, they progressively started dismantling every aspect of Vatican II. And it threw him into the deepest, darkest night of the soul. And he left the priesthood about 30 years ago. But he didn't just leave the priesthood. He left any faith tradition. And he's, we have these discussions and he's coming to realize how he threw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. Can we hold the tension between consciousness and unconsciousness? Because there, when I sank into my period of extreme doubt, which I call despair, I realized there was a gap in my practice, a gap in how I heard the teachings because we rarely turn our, our attention or our practice to not awakening. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King wrote, we must accept finite disappointment before and we must accept finite disappointment, but we must never lose infinite hope. We need both. We need the absolute aspiration of unconditioned hope and the relative path of constant disappointment. If we only have the aspiration and the idealization how do we ever get there? If we only have the moon, I have no idea how to get there. It's like that Nike ad, just do it. <laughs> I don't know how. If we only have the path, where are we going and why are we doing this? So we have to look at how do we integrate the absolute truth and, the, and the, the beauty of that and the relative path which is messy and hurtful and despairing. Because if we don't look into these states of what I would call non-enlightenment, there can be a crisis of faith because 
the absolute truth is not being achieved. We all have crises of faith. It's not out of the norm. And how do we navigate it? How do we turn towards, as opposed to my friend who turned away and turned away from a lot in his life when he turned away? So this absolute truth of awakening and the relative truth of not are really two sides of the same coin. They're the same experience. We can't experience awakening without not without experiencing not awakening. So they have this classic teaching of which many of you know, but some of you may not. And it's called the seven factors of enlightenment. These are the factors of mindfulness, investigation, effort and energy, joy or rapture, tranquility, concentration, equanimity. These are all factors as we begin to put the recipe of our practice together that help us concentrate and and focus and create insight. I'm actually more interested in the seven factors of non-enlightenment which is not in the traditional scriptures, but you all know them. Unconsciousness, boredom, lethargy, depression, agitation, distraction, and reactivity. So what is the range of experience between mindfulness and unconsciousness. Life is not dual, right? Mindfulness is not an on-off switch that we click. What are the levels of gray in between these experiences that we label? Because if I can feel that, I can feel the relationship even in my lapses of mindfulness. I can be connected to consciousness. I can stay in alignment with awakening. So likewise, what is the incremental scent of sensations and thoughts and emotions between boredom and investigation? What is in between lethargy and energy? How does despair move into joy or rapture? What are the nuances between the extremes of agitation and tranquility? The breadth of the landscape between distraction and concentration? And what happens between the states of reactivity and equanimity? These these 
what I'm describing is not an either or. Life is a lot more complicated than that. So here's an example of the spectrum just as an invitation to explore the complexities traversing between despair and joy. Despair, hopelessness, depression, grief, pain, sadness, regret, dejection, worry, heavy-heartedness, gloominess, troubled, irritation, questioning, dullness, indifference, neutrality, nonchalance, Stillness, coolness, calm, refreshed, ease, relaxation, contentment, comfort, gladness, cheer, wonder, delight, excitement, rapture, and joy. What is your felt sense of these factors of awakening and non-awakening? Because if you can see the spectrum, when we feel we're caught somewhere, if we see the larger picture that it's a spectrum, we're still connected to the absolute. We're still connected, even if we're feeling hopelessness. And how did the Buddha connect the unconditioned and the relative? What field did they create to integrate their awakened states and their non-awakened states of being? So most of our inspiration of the Buddha's, of our practice comes from one moment in the Buddha's life. And that is when he was underneath the Bodhi tree and he had insight and awakening. And that is not the totality of their biography. Because tradition, and you hold it lightly because it's all cosmology and it's archetypal mythology, but tradition points us that it took them thousands of lifetimes to awaken. So if that metaphor is useful, That means there were thousands of times they did not awake. I find that fascinating. Because if the Buddha was practicing mindfulness, and it is said that they did, and it is also said that you cannot become the Buddha without an intention of becoming the Buddha, 
So it was a conscious act. It didn't just, he, they didn't just randomly become the Buddha. I would assume that at some point in each of those unenlightened lives, they became mindful of the fact that they weren't going to be enlightened in that lifetime. They became aware of their own limitations, their own failures, their own shortcomings, and despite their very best efforts, they failed in that lifespan. What a disappointment. How disillusioning. Does this sound familiar? (laughs) Doing the best you can? Doing the best we can to live our highest aspirations towards freedom. So, We have stories about the Buddha's previous lives, all, you know, through the Jataka tales, which are diminished in a lot of academic circles because they're used as teaching stories and parables for families and children. And um, I actually think they hold wisdom that is carried generationally. And what is interesting is that all the Jataka tales are about... Um, the Buddha to be, not the Buddha themselves. And so they were not perfect, they were not fully awake, but they were practicing what, again, another classic teaching is called the paramis, the perfections, the, the, um, the fruit that ripens as we practice. And the stories show the paramis not yet fully ripe. <laughs> So in the Sakamkira Jataka, there was a prince who was in danger of drowning, and a beggar ascetic, who was the future Buddha, pulled him from the water. The prince actually was a very uh, dishonest and ungrateful person, so the prince disingenuously told the future Buddha, "Uh, if you're ever in my kingdom, come over and I'll support you. So when the prince became the king, the ascetic came into his kingdom. And instead of supporting the ascetic, the king was actually embarrassed that this ascetic had, had, had saved his life. And so um, the king had them beaten in the streets and dragged to their execution. And when the ascetic was asked in the street, what was the trouble between them and the king? They told the story and the the guards guarding the, um, the ascetic and the populace were enraged. So they went to the palace, beat up the king, threw his body in the moat, and the ascetic was anointed the ruler, the new ruler. An interesting story because it might be justice, but it's kind of a retributive Justice. It's not exactly compassionate restorative justices. <laughs> right? So, uh, with almost, it's just like uh, a lot of the traditional teachings have different refrains. The Jatakas have a certain refrain at the end of every story. 
when their days come to an end, meaning the future Buddhas, so in this case, the ascetic become king. When their days come to an end, they passed away according to their deeds, according to the imperfect deeds of most of their lives in which the Buddha did not awaken. And did the Buddha linger in despair? Did he give, did they give up hope to even try in the next lifetime? Did they ask the question, damn, now what? Did they grieve the loss of enlightenment in that particular time? And I'm being only half facetious. Did the Buddha go through Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five stages of grief? And I would say, yes. They must have because they were human. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, before acceptance is possible. The Buddha said that awakening is only possible in this life as a human being. That's what makes our human life so precious. Therefore, all the moments of non-awakening, all the lives of non-awakening are indispensable to the awakening itself. In our Western Vipassana tradition, there is this acronym of practice that we've been using for almost four decades that um, uh, I think Michelle McDonald Smith um, first used, and it's called RAIN. Recognize. Accept. Investigate. Not identify. So you can feel how it traverses the length of so much of the teachings. Recognize the moment in order to accept the moment so that we can investigate its true nature and realize our non-identification with it. What happens when you embed? This is, this is what I began to explore. The real unenlightened lived process of rain So I blended Dr. Ross's five stages of grief because before recognition and acceptance can be linked, I would recognize and then deny. Recognition, anger. Recognition, bargaining. Recognition, depression. Recognition, then maybe acceptance, then maybe investigation. Then maybe non-identification. And whether they were enlightened or not, the Buddha returned to practice. And that was also significant to me to, to look at. 
What do we do? Because we've all been there. We've all done our best. It hasn't been perfect. It won't be perfect. So in the loving kindness practice, I've created for myself a mantra that includes my non-enlightenment. And I offer it to see if you, it, it's beneficial. Some of you have heard this because I've been working this for a while. May I be loving, open, and aware in this moment. And if I cannot be loving, open, and aware in this moment, may I be kind. If I cannot be kind, may I be non-judgmental. If I cannot be non-judgmental, may I not cause harm. And if I cannot not cause harm, may I cause the least harm possible. So that even in my failure of my aspirations, I can still have that inclination. This is what we're doing here as we practice, is inclining the mind and heart even when we fail towards freedom. That's why we talk about freedom all the time. We integrate these opposites so that we hold the full range of our lives. Each time we practice awareness and kindness, we are not just transforming our world, we are transforming the world. We begin to aspire to hold the unholdable, to connect our broken hearts and our raging minds. And we look for that wisdom that's embedded between the unconsciousness and consciousness. It may seem like contradictions. But if we are paying attention to everything in between, it just becomes the same. It becomes that totality of our practice. So I want to end with a story that is mm, of both despair and hope. It's bittersweet. It's that complicated. And it connects for me this range of experience that's possible. And it's the path of Gavin Grimm. Some of you may know him. A, um, it's, a, it's a recent story. Uh, but it's not a grim story, so to speak. So in 2015, as a, um, 
uh, I believe a 15-year-old. He sued his school board's bathroom policy as singling him out for being different and um, uh, sued the school board for violating the Title IX Act, a civil rights law that prohibits discrimination based on uh, sex in in schools. And uh, uh, Grimm identifies as a trans teen. He's represented by the uh, ACLU, and he initially lost his case in district court in 2015. So in April in 2016, the Fourth Circuit, Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled in his favor, kicking back the case to the lower court, urging the court to respect the Obama's administration of trans-friendly um, guidance in bathroom access. The district court then granted an injunction that allowed Grimm to use the boys' bathroom while it considered his case. So I just want you to notice how intense this struggle is, as we, as we know, as, a commun- as communities. In May of 2016, um, the Obama administration, which had thrown its support behind the Grimm case, told the public schools that they could lose federal funding if they blocked trans kids from bathrooms of choice. And then 23 states have since sued the Department of Education over this directive. July 2016, the school board filed an emergency appeal with the Supreme Court asking the justices to temporarily block Grimm from the boys' room while they decided whether to review the appeals court decision. August 2016, the Supreme Court agreed and temporarily blocked Grimm from the boys' room. And that decision remains in place until the case is resolved. October 2016, the Supreme Court agrees to hear the case. March 2017, the Supreme Court announced that it will no longer hear the case after the Trump administration gave schools across the country permission to block trans kids' bathrooms of their choice. So the justices sent it back to the lower court. And it could be years before the higher court takes up the question again. So Grimm was asked how he felt about that decision. And he said, he, and so I want to continue the story. I was very disappointed, of course, and that is, that is, this is not going to be over as soon as I hoped. Not only will it take a bigger chunk of time out of my life, but more importantly, the kids that are stuck in limbo in, in the meantime. I am so upset that part of it will drag on even longer. But I mean, that's just how the cookie crumbles. So rather than focusing on what I can't control, I just set my sights on what I can control, and that's what I do going forward. The next question was, what is your main message for Trump? (laughs) And Gavin replies, I don't really have a message directly to the administration. My goal is to promote positivity 
And I think rather than address that head on, I'd like to voice a message of support and encouragement to the trans youth out there who are feeling scared and lost and alone and angry and sad. You know, this isn't the end of the road and there are still people fighting for them. This case is not over. It hasn't gone away. Regardless of what happens with this case specifically, in the end, equality will absolutely prevail. Absolutely. I believe that in every fiber of my being, and I hope they can keep that in mind and try to find time to love themselves going forward. 17-year-old. April 7, 2017. The fourth court overturns Grimm's win of last year based on the Supreme Court's decision. So that's the bad news. The good news is the opinion that two of the judges wrote. And really, I encourage you to go online to read it. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I will read a portion of it. One is by Senior Judge Andre Davis and the other, and he's joined by Judge Henry Floyd. And this is, these are circuit court judges writing an opinion. Our country has a long and ignominious history of discriminating against our most vulnerable and powerless. We have an equally long history, however, of brave individuals, Dred Scott, Fred Korematsu, Linda Brown, Mildred and Richard Loving, Edie Windsor, just to name a few, who refused to accept quietly the injustices that were perpetuated against them. It is unsurprising, of course, that the burden of confronting and remedying injustice falls on the shoulders of the oppressed. These individuals look to the federal courts to vindicate their claims to human dignity. Today, Gavin Grimm adds his name to the lists of plaintiffs whose struggle for justice has been delayed and rebuffed. Dr. King reminds us the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Gary Grimm's journey, Gavin Grimm's journey, is delayed but not finished. It goes on. And I will, the piece that I want to read. Gavin Grimm's lawsuit has also demonstrated that some entities will not protect the rights of others unless compelled to do so. Gavin Grimm takes his place among other modern day human rights leaders who strive to ensure that one day equality will prevail prevail and the core dignity of every one of our brothers and sisters is respected by lawmakers and others who wield power over their lives. Gavin Grimm is and will be famous and justifiably so, but he is not famous in the hollowed out Hollywood sense of the term. He is famous for the reasons celebrated by the renowned Palestinian-American poet Naomi Shihab Nye in her extraordinary poem, Famous. I have never heard a Naomi Shihab Nye poem quoted by anyone else but a Dharma teacher. 
The river is famous to fish. The loud voice is famous to silence, which knew it would inherit the earth before anybody said so. The cat sleeping on the fence is famous to the birds watching him from the birdhouse. The tear is famous briefly to the cheek. The idea you carry close to your bosom is famous to your bosom. The boot is famous to the earth, more famous than the dress shoe, which is only famous to floors. The bent photograph is famous to the one who carries it, not at all famous to the one who is pictured. I want to be famous to shuffling men who smile while crossing streets, sticky children in grocery lines, famous as the one who smiled back. I want to be famous in the way a pulley is famous or a buttonhole because it did nothing spectacular, but because it never forgot what it could do. And the judge's opinion ends with, despite his youth and the formidable power of those arrayed against him at every stage of these proceedings, he never forgot what he could do. And the last piece in July 2017, Grimm is now focused not just on trans rights, but pushing people from becoming politically apathetic in general. His quote is, I think people need to get more involved and more politically aware, understanding issues on a level that's not superficial. You know, get your hands in it a little bit more and do what you can and exercise your political rights. What a light to be guided by that we do not forget what we can do, that we do not forget that we can be aware, that we do not forget we can be kind, and that we do not forget we can rise above the collective unconscious. And the moment we incline towards that, there is some freedom. So thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.